But I do think uh, we evaluate catastrophe risk or natural hazard risk in every deal we do. Some areas are too high risk for us and we're uncomfortable with providing insurance for 30 years. Whereas in other communities, we may just decide that we might want to limit how much exposure we have there. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my friend and co-host, bona fide fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Always glad to be here. And as we speak, I am packing for our first international trip uh, since the pandemic started and we're going to Scotland. So super excited. The weather is supposed to be not great. So I'm bringing my uh, rain boots and other other fair weather gear. But we, we've been really looking forward to this. It should be a good time. We're going to go see a Six Nations rugby game. Um, Scotland is playing Ireland. It's the final match of the, the annual tournament and visiting a, a good friend. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds like... Uh... Sounds like a blast, and uh, I'm sure they'll play Flower of Scotland and all of those wonderful traditions that's around Scottish rugby. Well, safe travels, yeah. I think for uh, lots of folks, putting a putting a toe back in that water, particularly going to Europe right now, um, you can you can wonder, you can be concerned, you can plan for it, and and yet there's probably not going to be any moment in the next who knows how long that you say yes, absolutely going, no concerns, no uncertainty whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, travel is a different beast now these days, for sure. And and it's kind of funny because um, my husband three years ago in March of 2020 kind of did this same exact trip. He was on his own. He visited the same friend, went to a Six Nations game in Edinburgh and made it back to the U.S. like days before everything started shutting down. And so this trip is going to be kind of interesting. It feels very much like we're, we're coming full circle. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Almost three years almost to, on the nose. Well, we are uh, here today to talk about municipal credit, which uh, in some ways is, is almost kind of a contradiction in terms. I think the municipal bond market for a, most of its history in many ways has been kind of known for being a place without a lot of credit risk. Municipal bond defaults, especially for general obligation bonds, are extremely rare. There's certainly some instances of, of defaults and, and other credit problems in, in certain sectors, but for the most part, certainly since like the Great Depression, we haven't seen a lot of problems with uh, run-of-the-mill, plain vanilla, unlimited general obligation back uh, bonds. But um, these days, you could say that the world of municipal credit risk analysis is a pretty dynamic world. There's a lot more really careful analytics happening. Certainly the ratings agencies are doing what they do, but we're now seeing a lot of action on sort of the buy side. A lot of the big, you know, the big bond fund managers and big asset managers, uh, your Vanguard and Fidelity and BlackRock and, and those big firms like that are doing a lot of their own in-house analysis now because they seem to think that there's important differences in credit across different types of municipal borrowers and those differences in credit can produce differences in interest rates and that there's a, a money-making opportunity there in the market if you can understand where the, some of those subtleties in credit lie and, and how to take advantage of them. And so we've seen a lot of that kind of activity to say nothing for the advent of big data, 
artificial intelligence, a lot of the tools that we can now bring to bear on analyzing uh, the credit risk of, of municipalities that weren't available even just a couple of years ago. So with all of this dynamism in the world of municipal credit, there's opportunities both for investors who are looking to understand where that credit risk lies or does not lie and how to capitalize on differences in yields relative to that credit risk, but also from the in, from the issuer standpoint. And we're fortunate to have uh, on with us here today, Suzanne Finnegan, who is the chief credit officer at Build America Mutual, which is one of the bond insurers in the municipal bond market. If you're uh, an issuer, you're a city or a county or a school district, and you're going out to issue bonds, you can go to Build America Mutual and have a, uh, for a, for a small premium, have default insurance. They'll come in and, and make uh, payments in the event that you, as a government, are not able to make payments on your debt. And that obviously bolsters the credit quality of, of that issue and can lead to some savings from the issuer and ultimately the taxpayer's perspective. We're called, proud to call Build America Mutual a sponsor here at the Public Money Pod, given the work that they do. And I'm excited to hear a lot more from Suzanne about the kinds of issues in municipal credit that they're studying right now. Uh, so Liz, you and I both, I think we're fortunate in some ways to come up in the era when uh, bond insurance and, and municipal credit risk generally had kind of really bottomed out right in the in the immediate uh, period preceding and, and during and right after the Great Recession, circa 2007, 2008. You know, all we heard about was massive risk in the municipal bond world and uh, municipal bond insurers falling apart and it seemed like the sky was falling. Uh, we've recovered from that, I think, nicely. But for those of us who came up during that time, it was really a, a formative era. When you look back on on that relative to where we are now, thinking about municipal credit, uh, what's top of mind? Yeah, I can't tell you how many stories I've written on localities, states, um, making huge efforts to open up their books as a investors through investor relations websites or just more more data, more transparency online, the open checkbook movement, all of that stuff. And certainly the Great Recession and the collapse of the insurance industry had a lot to do with it because um, to get your um, issuance insured, that when that really, really stopped being an option anymore, governments felt really exposed and they had to, they couldn't they couldn't cloak themselves in the bond insurance. They had to stand up and and present what they had. And so um, that led to a lot of, of, like I said, that greater transparency and more more of a direct relationship with, with bond investors than I think governments really ever previously had. I also wonder if this need for more information from governments, the, the way you're talking about it before, it makes me wonder if this has accelerated in some sense, the, the demand for uniformity that we that we see now. It's always been there, but in the last decade, it's it's really kind of ramped up this clamoring for, from, from mostly from the investor side, for more uniformity between credits. And then, of course, we, we, we've talked about that before, but uh, trying to create any kind of uniformity standards and things like that with the, the badly of uh, municipal finances is, is a real challenge. It is. Yeah, it is. And and just like you said, though, as the investor community especially understands the the ways that those subtle differences in credit risk really do translate into in, into interest rates and ultimately into returns on investment, uh, yeah, the, the, de the demand to be able to compare on financial terms, municipal credits of all sorts will, will probably only continue to increase. And so the question of 
should that be on issuers to offer up information that's more standardized or on regulators to kind of force that question or should that continue to bubble up through the market organically in many ways that's one of the the key policy questions that we face right now with respect to the type of information that state and local governments are expected to put out into the market so you're right it's a, it's a great point about these two trends that at the face of it may seem like they're not all that well connected in fact probably have a lot to do with one another and the way that those two trends intersect going forward is probably going to have a big impact on what this market looks like in the next, say, three to five years. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Suzanne Finnegan, who's the Chief Credit Officer at Build America Mutual. Pleasure to have you with us here, Suzanne. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. So when I started a governing magazine back in like 2012, I remember somebody sitting down and explaining to me, okay, there's this, this thing called bond insurance and it wraps around the, the credit rating and provides a higher credit rating of insurance for municipalities that are going to market and want to be able to have a, have a better interest rate. And that all collapsed in the Great Recession. And um, I remember writing these stories as to you know what happened during bond insurance uh, during the Great Recession. And then a couple years ago, or during the pandemic, I wrote another piece about bond insurance's comeback. And so I would love for you to kind of fill in the gaps for us. Can you talk about why bond insurance went out of business, and a lot of them did, during uh, the Great Recession? And so what happened in between then and the, the pandemic when more people started turning to it again? Back in uh, 2008, more than 50% of all municipal bonds were actually insured. There were seven uh, companies in the business, and almost all of them were rated AAA uh, by one or both or three rating agencies, right? But going into the Great Recession, a number of the bond insurers experienced significant stress due to the structured finance and asset-backed security finance portions of their portfolios. Because of the stress on the credits they had insured, a number of the bond insurers were downgraded. When they were downgraded, those who had provided sort of specialty products in the market were forced to post collateral, which led to additional downgrades and really sort of spiraled out of control. So at the end of the recession, there were only two companies still left in existence, and they merged together to form the only uh, remaining operating bond insurer. Um, and that company did not retain its AAA ratings. I think it's important to note that during the Great Recession, despite the number of challenges there were in the market, the municipal bond portfolios performed fairly well. Um, there were not massive defaults. There were not massive bankruptcies. There, you know, They generally performed well. And so they did not drive the problems that the financial guarantee companies experienced. So we launched in 2012 and decided that the old model didn't really work very well, as we had seen in the, in the crisis. Um, the bond insurance companies had sort of moved away from municipal bond insurance to other segments of the market, um, which had you know, more risk than the traditional municipal bond portfolio. So we decided to launch in that traditional space, but clearly the model couldn't work as just a muni bond uh, 
insurance companies. So we launched as a mutual company where our owners are the members, our members are the municipalities whose bonds we insure. And so we don't have stockholders, we don't have shareholders, we don't have quarterly sales targets or a stock price to wonder, worry about. Um, we just want to grow the company bigger and stronger because that aligns with the interests of the municipalities we insure. So, so you guys came along in that in that period in between. Now, what happened during the pandemic with with bond insurance? So did it sounds like more more governments, maybe more stakeholders, were turning to it? Yeah, I think, you know, the demand for bond insurance always increases in times of uncertainty. Um, a lot of safe, quote unquote, safe sectors, you know, suddenly became vulnerable and sort of like safe sectors included airports and airport revenue bonds, which no one had had any interest in bond insurance for, you know, for many years. Uh, but with the changes in travel, people became very concerned there were two levels of concern. One was for the bonds that an investor holds, would the ratings on those bonds remain stable? And then secondly, could there actually be credit defaults? So, so two sorts of things, protection on the rating and then also protection against default. But very different than the Great Recession, coming into the pandemic, most municipalities actually were in very good financial condition. Most of them had a lot of cash. Most of them had good liquidity. They weren't highly leveraged. Interest rates had been so low for so long that their debt uh, profiles, most of them had refinanced any variable rate debt they had. So they just weren't exposed to a lot of the risks that were in the market at the beginning of the Great Recession. So it really became an opportunity uh, for investors to make sure that the ratings in their investment portfolios were stable. And so they started to seek bond insurance on uh, two things sectors that had previously been considered safe, and higher rated bonds. So during the pandemic, we have insured um, substantial amount of AA rated bonds, maybe AA minus or uh, AA3, but in the AA category, which was not really that appealing to investors prior to the pandemic. So the differences between the pandemic and the Great Recession are that interest rates have been low and are low. And as a result, most homeowners have fixed rate mortgages as opposed to in the Great Recession, where many homeowners had adjustable rate mortgages. And when rates moved, those people found themselves having a hard time affording property. Um, higher interest rates might have an impact on um, the the size or cost of a home people can afford, but the home they're in now is, should remain affordable because the rates won't change. And so the stability in the housing market means there's stability in property taxes, which tends to be the largest source of revenue for most municipalities. But it also, um, uh, federal aid and the return to low unemployment rates has really meant that sales taxes and income taxes, which are the other two primary revenue sources, really didn't fluctuate dramatically. And so most municipalities came through um, in really good condition. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I'm wondering, you mentioned the, the federal money, Suzanne. So in terms of 
you're thinking about the the credit outlook here and the and how that relates obviously to the the potential demand for insurance and just the the credit outlook across the sector when you look uh, at that federal money obviously it varies from place to place but are you seeing um, net credit positive net credit negative source of certainty source of uncertainty you know, what comes to mind when you think about the relationship between that federal money and muni credit so I think um, for the most part, um, I think it was a credit positive. I think it gave municipalities the ability to get through um, while retaining much of their staff. Unlike during the Great Recession, we didn't have massive layoffs of government employees, and I think the federal funding helped to do that. I think the area where it becomes a concern is now as that federal aid you know, potentially changes and is no longer sort of a direct revenue item for these governmental entities. I think the big concern is that there are some entities who use that federal aid, not for one-time extraordinary expenditures, but for ongoing operating expenses. There's recently been some publicity around the Yonkers uh, school district, which is a city school district. And so their finances and uh, management are run by the city, but they used some of their federal aid to hire a lot of teachers and other professionals. And now that the aid is tapering off, they don't really have a way to continue to pay those employees. Um, and they they were, you know, deemed to be highly essential employees, but, you know, it, it sort of violates the, the good premise of spend one-time money on one-time things. Um, and so hopefully that's not very widespread, but we know there are pockets where that did happen. Yeah. To your point, I mean, there's even um, places are spending money, even if it's temporary, it's on these temporary, like these really great programs, like extra, you know, more mental health counseling or, you know, things that things that we, we like to see anyway. I'm, I'm really curious as well to see how, if governments transition to to any of that and make it make it a permanent feature, in terms of what I just described, um, funding these programs even if they're temporary, temporary, but that they are good a, a good whole of government approach, does that play a factor at all in um, in how you look at governments? I think it does. I I think some of these temporary programs, um, which do fill a need. I think some of that is going to have to come from the states because local governments don't have a tremendous amount of flexibility in what they can do. They typically have limits either on their property tax collections or the mm -hmm. amount of debt they can issue. So I think a, a lot of those kinds of programs are going to have to be supported either through some combination, you know, either through some increased taxes at the local level, which is always hard, or through some combination, you know, some amount of federal and state funding together. My ears perked up earlier when you referred to adjustable rate mortgages, uh, because I, I have not heard anything about them for a good long while. And then just yesterday, I got an email from this realtor listserv that I'm on about adjustable rate mortgages. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're back. <laughs> um, so can you uh, talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in that area and how that might impact uh, municipal credit quality? The big concern, I mean, right now, the vast majority of people have a fixed rate mortgage, but as, in, as mortgage rates rise, buyers are tempted to move into those products where they can get a lower initial rate with the risk 
of the adjustable rate mortgages going through. We've been looking around at you know what kinds of products are being offered in the market uh, because the value of homes is a direct correlation to the property assessments in a community, which is directly related to how much property taxes they can collect. We've been looking at some of the major builders in the market um, to see what they're offering. And they are offering some teaser rates uh, to first-time home buyers or in certain of their communities. Um, and so we are keeping a close eye on that. One of the other things we've looked at is cancellation rates. I think there was an article today, I'm trying to remember which publication, but there was an article that talked about one of the major home builders is seeing a, a significant increase in cancellations of new construction. And so that's kind of a leading indicator about affordability. But having said that, uh, there are a lot of markets where it's still very hot and um, there's still a lot of development going on. So uh, I guess we'll see a balancing there. Definitely. We're focused on, uh, at the moment at least, some of the these kind of more near-term factors uh, that you've talked about, Suzanne, particularly the health of the housing market. We've talked many times on this podcast about some of those maybe longer-term factors, especially uh, things like climate adaptation. Uh, there's drought everywhere, it seems, these days. When you look at those uh, sort of broader, um, almost natural disaster or we dare use the word sustainability types of factors. Um, how's that playing into the, the sort of credit analysis that you all are doing right now? You know, it's a very critical piece of our analysis. Um, and we do not have a crystal ball, so we don't know with any certainty uh, which way things are heading. But I do think uh, we evaluate catastrophe risk or natural hazard risk in every deal we do. We use a variety of different tools to do that. There are a couple of um, subscription services which are available, which give you sort of probabilities of particular events occurring over the life of the bond issue, for example. But there are also free tools that are available from the federal government. Um, there's a NOAA tool that allows you to look at sea level rise in a community or potential sea level rise. There's a Another tool called the National Risk Index, which is also put out by FEMA, which ranks communities against other communities in their state in terms of hazard risk. Um, and then we also use, um, for example, for different kinds of transactions that are exposed to um, earthquake risk, we actually use an engineering firm to help us evaluate the relative earthquake risk in a community. So we use all those tools to try to help us identify higher risk areas. And where we see areas that are higher risk, some, some areas are too high risk for us and we're uncomfortable with providing insurance for 30 years in that community. Whereas in other communities, we may just decide that we might want to limit how much exposure we have there. Yeah, no, I agree completely. There's some very clear ways that sustainability concerns making their way into into their capital budget, into their capital improvement planning, how they're thinking about development, all of those issues. And so yeah, it seems, um, I, I take it from what you're saying that that kind of attention on building those concerns into those kind of nuts and bolts, day-to-day -day things that, that governments are doing seems like the, the, the kind of careful attention to 
that you're talking about that that will have some impact ultimately on on credit risk, even if you can't necessarily manage or or mitigate those risks. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, having a focus on it is definitely going to lead to to more positive outcomes. You can't fix everything, but uh, there's a lot that communities can do. Suzanne, we've had the Inflation Reduction Act that where funding is just coming online now. Uh, the past year or so, we've had funding start coming out from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. How does this boost to federal funding affect what's going on in uh, sustainability investing and, and in the bond market in particular? I think that's going to be a core part of it. The Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act provides about a billion two, I'm sorry, a trillion, 1.2 trillion. <laughs> that's a big number. I don't get to say every day. Um, 1.2 trillion um, of infrastructure spending over uh, five years. And so half of that are projects that are core municipal bond sectors, right? Roads, highways, and bridges, transit, and passenger rail airports and water infrastructure. I think the key to this is that these are matching funds. And so the local governments are going to have to come up, state and local governments are going to have to come up with their half. And I think it's very likely that that half is going to come from municipal bonds and municipal debt. Um, That is probably the most cost-effective way to do it. You know, that'd be somewhere in the 70 to $100 billion range to be able to get uh, those funds. And so I think that will have an impact. And a lot of those projects are projects that can be related, you know, can be related to climate um, issues um, and sustainability. There's the also the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, but that doesn't have as much a direct impact on the municipal market. That is more you know, incentives for the private sector or the green tax credits. And that seems like it'll have some activity, but maybe not a lot. I would say one other item to note is K to 12 schools are not included in either program. Um, And so that is an area the original Biden plan would have covered, provided some revenue for that, but uh, the final versions did not. So any K to 12 improvements, they're not going to be included in these programs. And that's going to have to come from state and local governments. How do higher interest rates affect the, the matching fund incentives for sustainable programs? And especially for, for BAM, uh, a bond insurer? It does have an impact. It depends on the, um, the source of repayment. So if bonds or um, general obligation bonds, typically those bonds are paid from property taxes and you levy, you know, whatever you need to, to make the debt service payments. So that translates into an affordability question for your taxpayers. If you have to raise taxes higher because interest rates are higher. Um, And then for other bonds uh, that are paid from different kinds of revenues, whether it's sales tax or utility revenues, same sort of thing. You have a, you have a fixed amount of revenue available and now you probably have to issue less debt. One thing about uh, municipal bonds is that they're very frequently issued with a call feature. Um, and so historically, during times of higher interest rates, municipalities would still issue the bonds. But when they got to their call date or close to the call date, if interest rates had come down, they're able to refinance at that lower 
you know, and lock in a lower interest rate. Um, so there is some flexibility from that standpoint. One thing that that we did see, and that was, you know, really very interesting, is that in November there were $82 billion of bond proposals on the November ballot across the country. And more than 90% of them were approved. Um, And so I think that's showing that the voters, even after all of that federal aid, the voters still had a lot of support for local projects, projects that benefited the communities they lived in. And so I think we'll continue to see Uh, very active market, even though the interest rates are higher. In fact, in Texas alone, there were $20 billion of school district bonds approved. Really tremendous local support, which is impressive because those are the people who are paying them back. Um, You know, there's the ones who are voting to raise their property taxes to support their schools and communities. So a really, really positive development. Yeah, agreed. And and seems to maybe contradict a little bit some of what we've been hearing early on in 23 about uh, a weak outlook for new issuance and, and a, you know, or a market that is will sort of remain largely, largely similar to what has been the past couple of years. I think it's an excellent point that you, that you point out, Suzanne. There's, there's really no substitute for that strong local support for those kinds of projects. Any other, um, <clears throat> with respect to issuance and just kind of looking ahead in the market for the foreseeable future here, um, with the point taken that you made earlier about no one has a crystal ball, but any other uh, key trends, regional variations, sector variations, anything else that comes to mind as you think about where the issuance and and where the you know where the action is going to be, so to speak, in the market in the not too distant future? You know, it's it is kind of hard to predict. Um, I mentioned that we see some markets uh, where. Growth is slowing, but growth is slowing. Um, there's still growth. And so I think uh, that includes Texas. Texas, uh, the market there is very active and I think will continue to be very active going forward. We have seen a lot of development, a lot of debt issuance um, in Colorado, um, in California. You know, one of the factors that you alluded to earlier, Justin, that I didn't really uh, dig all the way into is concerns about water um, and drought, you know, to the extent that that could have a potential slowing effect out in the West. Um, There's been some, you know, recent articles about certain communities in Utah that had been growing at a pretty rapid rate, but now there doesn't seem to be a lot of water to fuel future developments. So that I think is to follow it has, you know, we've seen in California, you know, following on the heels of that really terrible drought for so many years. Now we have flooding and tons of snow and, you know, it's hard to predict, but it does seem it will take years to recoup the lost water years during the drought. Um, and so that could have a slowing impact on the development out in the West. Suzanne, do you want to talk a little bit about Build America Mutual's Green Star program, which as I understand is relatively new as in the last few years. So yeah, BAM BAM is uh, a verifier for the Climate Bond Initiative, and we have our Green Star program where bonds that are used for green purposes, we are able to designate with our Green Star 
And the way that our program works is the Green Star is available for municipalities and school districts who are purchasing our insurance on that bond issue. Um, so there is no charge for the Green Star labeling. It's part of our review of the credit. You know, there's uh, a lot of discussion in the market as to, you know, it's it's a little bit chicken and egg or horse and cart, however you want to say it, you know, will you get a better interest rate or more interest in your bond issue if it has some kind of a green designation? Um, the other side of the coin is, well, if there's not a lot of those bonds in the market yet, you know, is it to come? I think if you look at what's happened in Europe, uh, there have been mandates that investors had to include a certain amount of green or social or ESG type products in their portfolios and in their investment strategies. It's not quite going that way here. We're seeing, uh, you know, some resistance to that, uh, to the labeling in certain states. Um, but I think generally speaking, it is a goal for many investors. And so having that as an extra tool and an extra piece of information about a bond issue is important. And I think um, for issues that do meet our uh, Green Star standards, I think that is just an additional tool. Our, our Green Star is a designation that you can find on Bloomberg. That also helps investors to be able to identify bonds that they might be interested in adding to a portfolio position. Um, and as more individual investors are focused on green or ESG investing, I think that will start to drive demand. Yes. And we are, as people who listen to this podcast know, we are fans of uh, chicken and egg metaphors. So <laughs> it's great that you set it up exactly that way. <laughs> Well, Suzanne Finnegan, Chief Credit Officer at Build America Mutual, thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights. I know Liz and I both always learn something when we have the opportunity to hear about credit analytics in the muni market and the interesting and dynamic world of municipal bond insurance. So thanks so much for giving us some of your thoughts today. We appreciate it. Thank you both so much for having me on today. Thanks again to Suzanne. That was a really um, wide-ranging talk about the municipal market and, and sustainability and, and many, many things. Um, one of the things Suzanne mentioned was housing. And incidentally, a, a housing article in Route 50 kind of caught my eye this week. So I thought I'd bring it up for our uh, ripped from the headline segment. The article's by Molly Bolin, and it's called Investors' Purchases of Single-Family Homes Drops by Almost Half. In the fourth quarter of 2022, investors spent $31 billion purchasing uh, just under 50,000 homes in the country's largest metro areas. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it's actually a 48% decrease from uh, a year at the same time period a year earlier. And it is, in fact, the largest drop in investor purchasing of, of single family homes since 2008. And I think we all know why. <laughs> 2008 saw a big drop. So what's going on now? It's a it's a, a couple of things. So for one, mortgage rates are up. And when that happens, there's less demand from buyers. And home prices as a result have fallen about 11%, as Molly reports. They, they peaked about a year ago in the spring of 22. And then so when and then you have mortgage rates up, decreasing home prices, that combination paired together essentially shrinks potential profits and investors are not 
just not as not as gung ho about purchasing as many homes because they won't be able to make as much money. So that's kind of the gist of it. And the article mentions two thousand eight, and 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 of course, what this reminds me of is like, well, this by no means is is a housing crash by any by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly it it's an indicator of of a cooling real estate market, and. Interestingly, so what happened in 2008 with investors purchasing homes uh, and, and properties in general is, is you had this phenomenon of a lot of outside uh, people owning properties and just sit, either sitting on them and, and waiting for the market to turn around. So you'd have these vacant homes or vacant office buildings or, or retail or whatever. And so blight, essentially, um, that was that was one problem slash issue. And another another issue with that was just investors scooping up properties, flipping them real fast and driving up home prices. And then when and rapidly and then it, you have that happening and, and put, with the potential of pushing out existing homeowners and and then and that that's kind of a, an issue as well. And so um it's essentially like this this non organic configuration of of local real estate, and as such, so this time around with that with that declining, of course, homeowners associations, lawmakers, housing authorities um, are really happy <laughs> that they're 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 stepping back. Um, and interestingly, Las Vegas saw um, was, was one of the places where you saw a lot of this, like outside purchasing um, over a decade ago, and then but it is one of the largest saw the largest drop in investor purchases about two thirds year over year phoenix another area where this was a really big thing in the great recession it's second to to las vegas so it's almost like the reverse of of what we were seeing back in 2008 2009 with these outside investors coming in and scooping up um properties so uh justin just uh you know curious about what your thoughts are on there and on the on the parallels we we're seeing here yeah, it's a great, I'm really glad you pointed this out. And it, it's amazing how nicely it connects to some of the comments that Suzanne made. We, you know, when we think about, again, kind of contrast, one of our themes here today is contrasting the the old muni market with the new muni market. And of course, an important part of the old muni market was the notion that property values always go up and therefore property taxes always go up, uh, sometimes within limits. And certainly if you have uh, state tax and expenditure limits or, or other kinds of caps on property taxes, that's going to limit how quickly property taxes increase. But generally, you could count on property values increasing and property taxes increasing, which made it a relatively straightforward thing to do unlimited general obligation bonds or limited tax general obligation bonds backed by those property taxes. The Great Recession taught us that, in fact, that may not be the case, that property values always go up. In fact, they they may be subject to bubbles, just like a lot of other assets. And then after that, and as you were saying, in the aftermath of the recession, when a lot of property was gobbled up at, at really aggressive prices, we've seen kind of this return to property values generally continuing to increase. And and it's been interesting how kind of little conversation there's been about the, the impact of property values as they stand today in a post-COVID world affecting what post-COVID state and local public finance looks like. And so when Suzanne said straight up, yes, this is one of the things we're, we're carefully considering is the housing markets and the health of, of property values all over and some of the regional variations. One of the things you immediately have to begin to think about is the role of these investors in, in 
shaping in some ways the supply and demand in given markets and then ultimately what that will mean for property values. It's hard enough to do effective property tax assessment. We've talked about that on a couple different episodes and then layer in you know the complexity of an investor dynamic where properties can be bought and sold in ways that maybe don't exactly track the market as a whole or, or might even run contradictory to your assessment cycles or whatever it might be. And this creates a, a real potential source of uncertainty for particularly local governments thinking about their post-COVID financial health. And um, I think something we don't talk enough about. I'm really glad that you're pointing it out because it does sort of say this is one more variable that we need to be identifying, thinking about when we say what what is what is the budget for city of X going to look like? You know, to what extent one of the important questions there is to what extent is its is its housing market affected by uh, surging or waning investor interest in single family homes? Yeah, for sure. And another another piece of that too is uh, it. I know this happened in Washington D.C. a lot because I, I reported on it back when I was a local reporter there. But out of jurisdiction investors, out of state investors buying a property and then just holding it and waiting for the, the 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 value to go up. And so depending on how long that could take, you could have a vacant property for five years, a decade. And and that's another thing that localities especially really kind of got on following the Great Recession is having a vacant properties tax or or some sort of stick really to to get investors to either do something with that place and and bring some bring some community into this empty building. Um, or to or to sell it and, and move on. That's right. Yeah, and now investors might very well be moving in ways that are contradictory to the fiscal policy goals that you might have in any given moment. Like we're trying to preserve property values, but investors are selling and dragging property values down as a result, and vice versa. It really does. It, it's. Uh, it's uh, taking a, a very complex market dynamic and making it more complex and even more difficult to manage from a, from a policy perspective. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. Thank you.